It's Thursday, November 29th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. We are learning more about a man named Sam Little, who could be one of the deadliest serial killers ever. Currently in prison for three murders, he is now claiming that he has killed at least 90 across the United States. Authorities have already corroborated his involvement in 36 of those cases, and expect more to be confirmed. Little was constantly on the move and targeted women who were prostitutes and drug addicts, and usually strangled his victims. These factors helped contribute to why he evaded capture for so long. James Queeley, reporter for the LA Times, joins us for more on this serial killer and how police are trying to connect all the dots. Next, as conditions worsen in Tijuana and at the border, some caravan migrants are giving up on seeking asylum in the United States. Some have decided to stay in Mexico and find work there. Others are heading back home. The backlog is so severe that it could take months before migrants are called on to submit their petitions for asylum. Elisa Caldwell, immigration reporter for the Wall Street Journal, joins us to talk about some of the migrants in the caravan turning back and how much longer we can expect all of this to last. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. The estimation by those who have dealt with him from investigators is that he definitely took joy in having having power over his victims, having power over life and death. He would kind of almost make a make a game of it, bring his victims close to death, and then continue on. I don't know that he did that in every case, but there's certainly been discussion of that. Joining us now is James Queeley, reporter for the LA Times. We're starting to get a, a better picture of a man named Sam Little. He's a convicted murderer who's serving time right now in Texas, but we're slowly finding out that he might very well be one of the deadliest serial killers that we've ever had in this country. Basically, what's happening is he's claimed that he has killed at least 90 women across the United States. He confessed the slayings in at least 37 cities, and I think he's been linked now to about 34 murders. What do we know about Sam Little and how are we just finding out about him? Sam has made news before. Um, he's been in law enforcement custody multiple times in the past on some of the very murders he has now confessed to as far back as in the 80s. He was, you know, one of the killings he confessed to recently. He was arrested for in Mississippi back in 1982. Another one in Florida. He actually stood trial for a murder in Gainesville in the uh, mid to early 80s and was acquitted and has since confessed to that. You might be familiar with the name Sam Little if you're in the Los Angeles area as he was convicted of three cold case homicides here in in 2014. But prior to that, he had never been successfully tried in the past. How is he escaping so much? I mean, I know he was tried and he got acquitted. He you know, no jail time before. I know he got caught in these last three murders that were related to Los Angeles. But before that, how did he evade justice then? One of the main issues here is the length of time he is claimed to have been targeting women for. He began this killing spree by his own admission in 1970. And a lot of the murders he has admitted to took place in that decade or in the early 80s, you know, kind of predating these large scale DNA databases where he might kind of come up as a pattern to police. You know, he predates the FBI VICAP system. And also, according to the FBI, some of these victims, the way they were killed, the way he attacked them was through a physical force. He would throw a punch and then often the deaths would be by strangulation. A lot of these killings initially were not regarded as homicides because he was targeting drug users. He was targeting prostitutes in many cases. A lot of the times local police may have initially dismissed these as drug overdoses or other kinds of death suicides, but they didn't track them as murders at first. 
you talked about how some of the way he would kill these women, a lot of them were through strangulation. At one point, he was a boxer in his life. And from some of the autopsies and things on, on some of the women, they said that he punched with such force that he struck one of the victims in the abdomen and broke her spine at some point. But this was part of what he did. They, I think the FBI also said that he'd punch them and stun them. And then uh, after that, you know, strangle them. Yeah, that was the wording they used. That wasn't the method every time, but it was always it was always physical force. He was pretty physically strong by law enforcement's description. You know, there were incidents in San Diego where he would kidnap a woman off the street and was, you know, strong enough to lift somebody up, put them in their car, render them physically incapable of fighting back pretty easily. I don't I don't know about that specific detail you you mentioned about the punch that could have shattered or otherwise damaged a person's spine, but he was a if he was a competitive boxer and, you know, just given his size, you would imagine that that would be believable. So how do we come to know of these 90 women supposedly that he's claiming? Texas Ranger was doing an, a couple of interviews with him for cold cases related to his area, and then he just started opening up and talking to him? He's been in custody in California since 2012. He was arrested by the Los Angeles Police Department's Robbery Homicide Division. They had matched him to three murders here in the 1980s based on DNA evidence. He was convicted in 2014. The conversations I've had with the investigator on that case, Little is definitely believed by most police that have interacted with him to hold a strong hatred for women, and he has and at least the belief is he resented the idea that he was captured by a female detective in the LAPD and prosecuted by a female deputy, a female assistant district attorney. So he had not spoken to investigators here for years, even though they believed he had committed a number of other killings. You know, survivors of attacks he allegedly committed in other states and other cities had testified at his trial. The Rangers office in Texas did start developing information on a killing from 1994 in Odessa, Texas, of a, of a woman there named Denise Brothers. The ranger there and the FBI believed it fit the pattern of Little's other, you know, killings Little had been suspected in but never proven to have done. So that Texas ranger, James Holland, comes out here and meets with the LAPD investigators, meets with Mitzi Roberts, who's the detective who initially guided Little's capture. They kind of strategized how to go about this, and she suggested that he appeal to Little's ego, maybe take some shots at her since he had this loathing of her. And that kind of opened the floodgates for him, that and the agreement that he no longer have to serve prison time in California. He's now being held in Texas, and I believe the agreement he's reached with the FBI and the Rangers that he will be held there. In September is when he just began giving up these details. As the FBI and other investigators have put it, he's not always giving names. He's not always giving exact times, but he's generally been giving what they see seem to be uh, saying are accurate descriptions and accurate locations. And that's how they're trying to corroborate killings in a lot of these other cities is by using those descriptions. I mean, some of the descriptions are very accurate, and I think he's even drawing pictures. He said, I, you know, I dumped the body under a pecan tree. And then they're going back and saying, we found this body under a pecan tree and this time frame, and it matches. And that's how they're matching him all up. Some uh, investigators and police officers were saying that this is part of what he wants. He wants that notoriety or, you know, he just wants to be listened to. And he is the talk of the town. I mean, there's investigators from all over these uh, states and cities where he's been active that are going to interview him and, and trying to follow up and trying to connect all the dots now. Right. And it's answering a lot of questions in, in a lot of cities, especially a lot of places in the southeast. You know, I just spoke to a major in the Mobile, Alabama Police Department a little bit earlier today, mentioned that he had sent detectives to Texas to talk to Little on November 8th, so I guess about two, three weeks ago, and they came back with a confession and him giving up information that only the killer could know in two 30-year-old homicide cases they had. And as far as the information he's giving, there are times that he is exceedingly specific. You know, I talked to a retired LAPD cold case investigator during the course of reporting the story out, and 
there was at least one case, I don't honestly remember which state, but there was one murder victim where he had taken the woman out to dinner before attacking her, and he described what they had, and it matched the contents of her stomach in the autopsy, and this was a killing that took place 30 years ago. So huh. it kind of makes sense, given what we're being told about him, He, you know, that he can't remember the names of these women, but he can remember what he did with them. It's almost as if he, you know, he's kind of dehumanized the person, but remembers the acts that took place around the surrounding the crime. The FBI has released a timeline now of slayings that they believe are linked to him. If you Google his name now and you go through, you know, local news reports now, you're starting to see a lot of headlines that are saying Sam Little possibly linked to these deaths in this name your city here kind of thing. So it's being picked up all over the country now, and now that the FBI has released this timeline. Yeah, I mean, it's going to cause questions in, in cases that may or may not have anything to do with him. You know, I've gotten a couple of emails and calls. I used to I used to be a reporter in New Jersey, and there's an unsolved string of murders of sex workers in that area from the mid-2000s. And there was mention in the FBI report that he may have lived in New Jersey at one point instantly. There's, there's connections there. It's going to be all over the place, and it's understandable that people are going to, you know, now that he's open and taking credit that they're going to look at any any kind of murder that is anywhere in the phylum of what he says he did. You know, he could be at least under suspicion for. Uh, and there's, there's some concern on the part of law enforcement that he may be confessing to more than he's actually done. As you said, he confessed to 90. They've corroborated. Yesterday, the count was 34, I believe, with the two I mentioned in Alabama that I was told about today. That brings it up to 36. But, you know, there have been other instances in U.S. criminal justice history where people have claimed credit for a lot of murders they did not do like you said, for the sake of notoriety. Let's go back to Los Angeles and talk a little bit about how he was eventually caught. The DNA scene wasn't so big when he was committing these crimes, but DNA did help put him in the place of these three murders that he was uh, convicted of. The LAPD had reopened his case and several others back in 2012, just as simply as a result of a of a grant they had received, and they matched his DNA to one murder in 1987 and two in 1989. That was a large period of time that he was in California. Right before he came here, he had been arrested in the abduction and strangling of two women in San Diego, both of whom survived, but he was only sentenced to two and a half years in prison down there for false imprisonment. So he's he's matched on the DNA hits here for the killings immediately after his, his prison stretch from the San Diego cases, and then he disappears for something going on 25 years. Once the DNA hits were made, LAPD knew that they who knew who they had, but it was they were having a hard time get, catching him. As we've mentioned in this conversation, you know, he tended to float from city to city with something of a transient, didn't really ever keep a permanent address or a job. You know, he was shoplifting a lot and, or stealing or robbing, just kind of finance his movements. What the LAPD did to finally catch him, actually, was Detective Roberts was, was going to these cities and trying to establish relations with local law enforcement, trying to find Little. She couldn't find him, but she does end up finding out that he was using a prepaid benefits card. I'm not sure if it was an electronic benefit, EBT-type card or a Walmart card, but something of that nature. She manages to get his account information and calls up the customer service line and you know does the whole, I, I forgot my account number or I lost my card thing, and they give her the list of transactions he's made or his last couple of transactions and she managed to map that location pretty close to a uh, halfway house in Louisville, Kentucky and had the marshals after him within a day. Yeah, amazing cop work going into that and contributing to the elusiveness of all that. Uh, primarily, he targeted women that were prostitutes and drug addicts. One of the cops said he, women that people wouldn't miss kind of thing. So it was hard to uh, do full scale investigations on those. And just kind of painting a picture, you, you mentioned those women he attacked in San Diego. They were able to testify against him in the trials 
and just how bad a guy he was. The women said it was almost like a game when he would be strangling them, like taking them to the point of unconsciousness, then letting up and letting them catch their breath, then going back in it for it again. The estimation by those who have dealt with him from investigators is that he definitely took joy in having having power over his victims, having power over life and death. So it tracks, unfortunately, with that horrible description you you just mentioned that he would kind of almost make a make a game of it, bring his victims close to death, and then continue on. I don't know that he did that in every case, but there's certainly been discussion of that. Well, I mean, it's good news that we're now starting to connect all the dots. Hopefully, provide closure for a lot of these open cases, cold cases that have not been worked on in in a lot of time. And we'll see just what happens. He's like an elderly, sick man now. He's 78 years old. He's in a wheelchair. He's already serving time. He's just going to be there for the rest of his life, it seems like. Yeah, he, the FBI is saying he will not be leaving the custody of the Texas Rangers. He's going to be jailed there the rest of his life. There are other other departments do want to prosecute him for the murders he has confessed to. Prosecutors in Alabama want to bring him up on, on charges. They're seeking a grand jury on the two murders he's confessed to there. Uh, in L.A., the LAPD has also talked about if they're going to validate these uh, 15 additional murders he has confessed to here, that's in addition to the three he's convicted of. Uh, you know, he says he killed 15 women here in the 80s and 90s. They also would like to bring bring cases with the DA's office here, and it's a matter of, you know, will he survive long enough to even answer for those things? James Queeley, reporter for the LA Times, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for your time. As far as the troops, they are proud to be on the border. They are proud to be defending our nation. And we're not letting people in. It's called catch and detain. It's not called catch and release like it has been for many years. Joining us now is Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter for The Wall Street Journal. You have been following this story of the migrant caravan very closely, repeated trips to Tijuana to follow the story there. The latest that I've been seeing in a a bunch of different outlets is that conditions are getting worse there for some of the migrants waiting to get processed, waiting to seek asylum. And a lot of them are considering or have already started to turn back or claim asylum there in Mexico. What do we know about the latest? Increasingly, people are are asking to either go home to their home countries or to apply for asylum in Mexico. It's an offer, the asylum part, that Mexico has extended since the group reached Mexico some weeks ago. Early on, some people started taking advantage of that. Others, as we know, arrived at the border in Tijuana and had been waiting. And then after the events of Sunday afternoon, the clash with the Border Patrol, some folks have have decided by the hundreds now to just turn back. Life is, is simply too difficult in the hopes of getting across the border seem to be diminishing for them. Talk a little bit about where the migrants are staying right now. I know they're in some old sports stadium. About 5,000 migrants are there. And then in uh, nearby shelters, there's 3,000 more migrants just hanging around, camping around in those places as well. There were about 2,800 people in line to ask for asylum in the U.S. before this group arrived in Tijuana. So shelter space has been at a premium for weeks now, if not months. There's about a thousand shelter beds, I'm told, in Tijuana, and those have been full. Those that were not full prior to the caravan's arrival quickly were snatched up. Caravanners themselves, generally about 5,000 or so, as you described, are living in an old sports complex. There's a, a baseball field, there were some basketball courts, and some other sort of open green space that is now covered entirely with tents or makeshift lean-tos with tarps and plastic sheeting, sort of the, the 
plastic sheeting that comes on a mattress, for instance. Right. I saw a couple of those trash bags made into, into shelter to keep the sun and, and other elements off of people as well. And what have the people you've spoken to there been saying? I mean, I know there's frustration. I know some of them, as we've been talking about, you know, just giving up and, and wanting to go back to their home country despite violence and whatever prompted them to start in the caravan. Well, what have they been telling you? So it's a mix. Yesterday, I spoke with several people who said they're not going to go home. They can't, in their view, go home. But it doesn't seem likely that they'll get to the United States. So they've resigned themselves to staying and, and trying to work in either Tijuana or some said they, they might look elsewhere in Mexico, but that going home was not an option for them. But staying in the camp that has been established at the sports complex is an increasingly untenable prospect as well for many people. The Trump administration had asked the courts for a green light to enforce their new restrictions on asylum. That was denied. I think they're still trying to get the judges to come around on that. Do people on the ground there, organizers of the caravan, anybody, are they in tune to what's going on here in the States? I mean, are they relaying any of that information to these thousands of migrants waiting to seek asylum? It's a little bit tough to say who knows what and and who the organizers are. It's really a large group of people with lots of different information channels. Some are reading local Mexican newspapers. Others are hearing through social media or through text messages and other means, including talking to reporters who are allowed into the complex twice a day for about an hour. Information is scarce and everybody seems to have a different nugget of information that they either share with friends or have heard through other people in the group. So it's hard to say that everyone or, or specific groups know exactly what's happening in the United States other than they know the president has made comments that he's not overtly welcoming of this group into the United States and that there are some complications going forward. They, they saw that firsthand in terms of the interactions with law enforcement on Sunday. Tear gas was deployed as Border Patrol says at least a thousand people tried to push toward the border and in some cases coming across the border, breaching pieces of the border fence in some areas. And Border Patrol says that there were rocks thrown and so on. People I talked to, some participated in, in the march to the border, but ran back south or away from the tear gas and so on. Others said they stayed behind. One woman described, you know, she has a four-year-old son and didn't want to put him in danger. So her husband went. And as of Monday, she'd not heard from him again. Nobody was seriously injured on either side, but there were a number of arrests, both in the U.S. and in Mexico. So information is a premium, but it's somewhat scarce in terms of a consistent flow of information because there are so many different people and it is relatively loosely organized bands of people. I mean, it's so crazy to even think about how long this process will even last. The president is threatening a government shutdown over border wall funding. He's fighting with the courts to get his new asylum restrictions in place. There's ongoing thing with children in these shelters on the state side. And then all these migrants waiting to seek asylum, knowing, I guess, a lot of them possibly that it could take months. So it just seems like this is going to be the ongoing story for some time now. Don't expect it to end you know, immediately. There's no light switch that can go on or off to end this situation. Border Patrol and, and Customs and Border Protection told a bunch of reporters that with the 2,800 or so already in line in Tijuana, that could take about five weeks for them to process through, then the caravanners will start. And so, you know, it's five weeks after they've already been in Tijuana for upward of three weeks now, living in the sports complex for a little over two weeks now. So it's going to be a long, long slog for a number of these people. And as I described earlier, and as you pointed out, some are leaving, some are are packing up and, and leaving Tijuana some are going, opting to go back to their country of origin. Others, we suspect, are just sort of moving on beyond Tijuana or trying to get to a different place where perhaps there's a job opportunity or, or some other means by which they can set up a life, at least for now. Alicia Caldwell, immigration reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
All right, that's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.